So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you. And I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who had devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord. This is now the third week that we've been focusing on this parable, which has been called Jesus' masterpiece. By now, the prodigal has gone off script to a far country and returned, which turned out to be particularly bad news for the fatted calf. The elder brother has come in and has gone back out, and now the loving parent, fresh from his embrace of his younger son, implores the older child to come join the party. The younger, when he went and was in that far country, had a plan all worked out. He rehearsed his lines. He was ready to negotiate hired hand status with his father. The father did not negotiate. He celebrated, hence the party. For that matter, this loving parent is not going to negotiate with the elder brother either. When it comes to grace and love, apparently in God's economy, there is never negotiation. There's only invitation. Our world today, however, begs to differ, as it always does. We are living in a world where today famine is overwhelming South Sudan. Take that in for a moment. We are 17 years into the 21st century, and a 1,000 people a day are dying, many of them children, because they don't have food. Closer to home, anti-Jewish assaults are rising 72 years after the Holocaust ended. And in the first 72 days of this year, there have been 459 homicides in Chicago, most of them young people, most of them clustered in four neighborhoods. So to say that grace and love are non-negotiable in our world, that does not seem to be true. The parable that begins, a father had two sons, can be seen as a search 
for ultimate meaning in a world coming apart. The younger child thought he was searching in a far country for whatever he couldn't find close to home. The older child's search was for affirmation or approval or validation of some sort. The search, Walker Percy once wrote, is what anyone would undertake if he or she were not sunk in the everydayness of their own life. To become aware of the possibility of the search is to be on to something. Not to be on to something that matters is to be in despair. The parent in this parable stands alone in knowing that our search, everyone's search, is a search for wholeness in God's world. He sees each of his children sunk into the despair of not being on to something that matters. And he's willing to pay any price. The father will pay any price, any price, to bring them into an embrace that tells them they are whole. In his story, Capital of the World, Ernest Hemingway tells a tale of a Spanish father searching for his son who ran away from home after a fight that they had. The father so badly wants his beloved son to return that he places an advertisement in the local papal El Liberal. The advertisement reads, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. The next day at noon, arriving at the Hotel Montana, the father is astonished to see 800 young men, all saying their name is Paco, standing in line to receive that forgiveness. Jesus understood this profound need. And so he told this parable about two lost children and a father who knows what our search is all about. We all have this deep hunger for forgiveness. When we inventory our lives, bad decisions, selfish acts, stupid moves, that's what stands out in our mind's eye. We know that we have spoken angry words and we behaved in cloddish ways and even done violence toward other children of God. Now occasionally, I'm sure we've all encountered someone who says they have no misgivings about how they live their life. There is nothing in my life I would have done differently, they say. I have never believed a word of that when I hear it. In Clint Eastwood's Western movie, Unforgiven, there's a moment when a young outlaw, the Schofield kid, is overcome by the fact that he's just shot a man. Even though the dead man was a nasty character, the young fighter struggles with what he has done. Finally, through his tears, the kid appeals to an older, jaded partner, William Muni, played by Eastwood. I guess he had it coming to him. He sure had it coming to him, didn't he, Will? Silently, Muni thinks over the weeping man's question, and then spitting in the dust, the craggy-faced gunslinger says, we all got it coming, kid. We've all got it coming. This is why we all hope against hope for an embrace when we limp home. We are all Pacos, yearning, to find the one who has the authority to say to us, all is forgiven. In 1993, Maya Angelou had a small role in a movie, Poetic Justice, starring Janet Jackson. One day, as she was coming out of her trailer on set, 
Maya Angelou noticed a young, angry man in a confrontation. She'd seen this person on set for several days, and each time he was aggressive and hostile and angry. That particular day, he was disrupting the whole set. As Maya Angelou recounted years later, he was in a big row with another young man, so I said to him, may I speak with you? He was cursing. Woo, he was cursing. I said again, may I speak with you? And I said, when I got him apart from that, I said, when was the last time anyone told you how important you were? Did you know that people stood on auction blocks and were bought and sold and survived so that you could be alive today? And finally, he heard me and stopped talking and started to weep. And I put my arms around him and I wiped the tears off his face, but they just kept coming. And, and we kept talking. And finally, I walked him back to the arena and he quieted. I went back to my trailer and Janet Jackson came running in and said, Dr. Angelo, I don't believe you actually spoke to Tupac Shakur. And I said, darling, I didn't know him from Six Pack. <laughs> what I know is that he's in a world of pain. Much of contemporary spirituality revolves around our search for God. And of course, we put ourselves in the starring role of that. We search for God. But in Jesus' parable, the parent is the active one, the one who's doing the searching. This is the one who has the authority to speak the words that we all need. All is forgiven. And he is searching for us. He does not stay hidden in the house waiting for us to come crawling back and begging for forgiveness. It's the parent who has come rushing down the road toward us, not spending any time listening to our contrition, not interested in making any deal with us. The parent just wants us back in his arms. And not just with the prodigal, but also as he goes to search for his elder son, going out into the fields and looking for him and trying to get him to join the party. So it is that God is always searching for us. This is one of the keys to this intricate parable. As intriguing as all the characters and their actions are, this is a parable about God's activity. When we are probing any biblical text, it is crucial that we remain undeterred in asking one essential question. What is God up to here? And as the text from Jeremiah echoes this morning, what God is up to is nothing short than forming new bonds with us. No artist has captured the tenderness of this scene better than Rembrandt in his painting, The Return of the Prodigal, which is on your bulletin cover now for several weeks. In the painting, the returning son is seen in tattered clothes. His head has been shaven, and he's on his knees. The father bends over the son and holds him to his heart. All the light in the painting emanates from the embrace. The elder brother stands off at a distance. The light is before him. Darkness is behind him. He has a choice to make. Art experts have long speculated about the father's hands in the painting. 
There is something unique about the father's hands. The left hand appears very masculine and strong. It's firmly placed on the boy's shoulder. It is clear that the father is keeping the son in this embrace through this hand in which all the muscles are flexed. The right hand is softer, almost feminine, and it's on the boy's back. It appears that with that hand, the father is gently stroking the boy's back as a mother would nurture a child. In the second century, the early church theologian Irenaeus claims that the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ are the two outstretched arms of the Creator. God uses both of them to pull us to God's heart. I have no idea if Rembrandt had ever heard of Irenaeus or not. But clearly, he's trying to do the same thing. With one hand, God is holding us secure in the work of Jesus Christ. With the other hand, God is comforting us through the Holy Spirit that conveys God's nurturing love. Which is why I think the most important words in these texts are so easily overlooked. The words are at the very end of the parable When the parent says, but we had to celebrate and rejoice. I don't think I've really ever noticed that fully before. This insistent commanding phrase, we had to celebrate. When God's grace and love are involved, celebration, joy, it's required, it's not optional, it's mandatory, it's a requirement of creation itself. As one commentator has noted, I think if you are paying attention to the arms of God around you, celebrating is inevitable. That means if you're struggling to find joy, the place to begin is not with what you are holding, but with who is holding you. A a friend and a pastor, a colleague, recounted recently Usually when people make an appointment to see a pastor, it's because they're going through a hard time and need pastoral care, or because they've come to complain about something, or because uh, there's a wedding or funeral to plan, or if they're a leader in the church, there are plans to be done. Rarely does anyone ever make an appointment with a pastor to say, I just wanted to let you know I'm really happy. That never happens. But... Craig went on to say, but there's a woman in our church who does exactly that regularly. The first time she came to see me, I was struck by how contented she seemed. That can't be right, I thought. Uh, As the time began to tick by, I waited for the other shoe to drop. I asked, how are your relationships? And she said, you know, some good, some not so good, but they're fine. How's your work? Well, work is work, but, you know, it's okay. Well, how's your health? She seemed confused by this inventory and responded, well, I'm getting on in years, but I I can't complain about anything. Almost with exasperation, I said, then why are you here? (laughs) And she said, I just like telling people how grateful I am. And not getting it yet, I said, grateful for what? (laughs) And she looked surprised and she goes, well, for the love of God, mostly. The pastor concluded, over the years, I have become familiar with this woman's life. Her life is not any different than yours or mine. She has had all the usual heartaches that all of us have. She's had ups and downs in life. She's had blessings and losses. She's made some mistakes. She has, in the word of the confession, sinned against heaven 
and before others, but she has always paid attention to the grace of God. She's attentive to the embrace of God that, as she describes it, always seems to be rushing toward her before she even knows she needs it. God's goal for our lives is to draw us into an embrace of love and grace. Note, it's not just to embrace us. It's to draw us into that embrace of love and grace. The father ran when he saw his younger son approaching. The father went out to the older son. He did not wait to react. He acted. It's not too much to say that the root of all justice and all love and all forgiveness and all community and all faith is this embrace by the God who created us. That's a tall order. It's such a high challenge in a world like ours. Most days, frankly, it's hard to see how we will achieve this world of justice and love and forgiveness and community and faith with all that seems to be working against it. However, if we do not arise every day recognizing this singular goal, to be drawn into this embrace of a forgiving God, then we are selling ourselves short and we are selling God short. God will not be underestimated in the reach of God's power and love and grace. As we will see most clearly four Sundays from now with the sound of the Easter trumpet, God draws us into this embrace of love and forgiveness. Do you know how important you are? God does. Do we know how important that child who's going to die today in South Sudan is? God does. Do we know how important that despairing teen on the south side of Chicago is? God does. Do we know how important that weeping widower is standing over his wife's grave in a desecrated cemetery? God does. Once we come to understand how important we are to God, our job, frankly, one of our only jobs in life is to share with the rest of the world this truth. God draws us into an embrace of forgiveness and love and grace And God will never, ever let us go.